Three questions will guide uh, my comments to you this morning. So let me give those to you. Number one, question number one. Does God want to move in and through his church in this day and age? Does God desire to do that? And I guess along with that, does God need to move in his church? I think everyone would say, yes, we want and we need God to move in our church today. But does God still desire to do it? I I came across an article. It's been a few months ago now, but it's called The Rise of the Done with Church Population. It reads, John is every pastor's dream member. He's a lifelong believer, well-studied in the Bible, gives generously, and leads others passionately. But last year, John dropped out of church. He didn't switch to the other church down the road. He dropped out completely. His departure wasn't the result of an ugly encounter with a staff person or another member. In fact, it wasn't triggered by any single event. John had just come to a long-considered, thoughtful decision. One day he said, I'm just done. I'm done with church. It turns out John is one in a growing multitude of ex-members in America today. They're sometimes called the de-churched. They've not abandoned their faith. They've not joined the growing legion of those with no religious affiliation, now known as the nuns. Rather, John has joined the duns. To an increasing degree, it appears the church is losing its best. The question is, why are the duns done? And in all their surveying and what they were able to understand, those people that have left and walked away, here's what they said. The duns are fatigued. They're tired with the Sunday routine of plop, pray, and pay. They want to play. They want to participate. They want to be in the game. But they feel like they're being spurned at every turn. Does God desire to move in and through his church today? I believe he does. In spite of the reportedly large numbers of persons abandoning the local church, I'm still convinced. Why? Because scripture teaches it that the church, the local church, is God's divinely ordained method to reach the world. I serve a missions ministry. I have worked in two other, three other missions ministries, parachurch ministries. But I believe it is the local church is God's divinely ordained method to reach the world. And I'm so proud that we just sent a team to Honduras. With that in mind, yes, I believe he does. I believe God wants to work and move in this way. Second question is, if so, if God does desire it, if he wants to move in our midst today, is he doing it anywhere? Is he currently moving? Do we know of a place in the world where God is at work and it's visible and it's active? We do, but it's perhaps in a way that we have never expected. Now, those of you who've been with me on Wednesday night, this won't come as a surprise to you. But a man named David Garrison wrote a book, Wind in the House of Islam. Listen to what he said. God is doing something unprecedented in the Muslim world today. Over the past 14 centuries, since 600 AD when it was founded, Islam and Christianity have been engaged in a global contest with eternal implications. 
During the first 12 centuries of that 14th century period, tens of millions of Christians were assimilated into the house of Islam. A broad expanse of territory that encompasses now more than 1.6 billion Muslims. During those same centuries, those 12 centuries, there were only three. Three movements of at least a thousand Muslim conversions to Christian faith. In 12 centuries, only three movements meaning 3,000 to 4,000 Muslims who came to faith in 12 centuries that we know of. And that pattern, though, began to change at the end of the 19th century, in the late 1800s, when two new movements of Muslims appeared, one in Indonesia and the other in Ethiopia. But then in the latter third of the 20th century, a further 11 movements of Muslims to Christ took place. But this is the good part, folks. Listen, in the first 13 years of the 21st century, now it's 2016, now he wrote this in 2013. But he was saying from 2000 to 2013, we have seen an additional 69 movements of Muslims to faith in Jesus Christ. There is a wind in the house of Islam. And though this is still tiny when compared to religion that adds nearly 30 million to its number every year, this unprecedented awakening in the Muslim world is still very significant. Does he want to move? Yes. Is he moving? Yes. But maybe not in ways that we have heretofore thought was possible. So number three question, the third question is this. How will we know? How can we know Grace Hills Church when God moves? In our midst. If we desire him to move and we believe he will move, how will we know when he does move? I once attended a conference on spiritual awakening, and it was in the Northeast and, and where there had been spiritual awakenings in the past. And, but the audience was asked the question, What is revival? And they were, people were invited, about 200 people there, people were invited to come up and share what they thought revival was. And one church leader came forward. And gave a definition that implied a movement of God. Revival could be identified by the exchange of old, ancient, outdated, irrelevant biblical truth for modern cultural relevance. In other words, we would know we'd have revival when people cast off the scriptures and started believing and, and, and accommodating the culture. Well, let me tell you, I said then, <laughs> I stood up in response to that, and I repeat it now. Folks, if God chooses to move among us, then that movement will be defined by him, and it will be consistent with his word. Do you agree? Yes. If God moves, it'll be in agreement with the word of God. Do we want him to move? Yes. Do we believe he can move? Yes. Is it possible? And how will we know? We'll know because it'll agree with the word of God. It'll be there. So what is the context for what I'll share? I want to share with you this morning seven unmistakable marks of a movement of God. Now hear me. 
These are not the seven marks of an unmistakable movement of God. In other words, as if there aren't any others, or there might not be another list of seven. This is seven that I see based on a story in Scripture, and the story is that of Peter and Cornelius. As you know, Peter had gone to Joppa, and while in Joppa, staying at Simon the Tanner's house, where he would have been exposed to a lot of unclean animals, no doubt about it. While he was there, he had a vision as he was praying, and he saw unclean animals being lowered in a sheet from heaven, and God told him what? Take up and eat. And he said, I can't eat these things. They're unclean. And God said, what I have uh, made clean, it's okay to take up and eat. That confronted his sensibilities. But he knew God was doing something in his heart, and then the next day, somebody knocked on the door, and it was some men from where? from Cornelius' home in Caesarea, and they had come to get him. So we're going to pick up that story in chapter 10, verse 24. Chapter 10, verse 24 of the book of Acts. So join there with me, if you will. Let's pray, and then let's, uh, let's look at these seven marks. Lord, thank you for your grace, and thank you for your mercy, and thank you for the word of God, and thank you for Peter, and thank you, oh God, that you still want to move in our midst today. Lord, we thank you that you are moving in the Muslim world. Lord, we thank you that people who are so opposed to the gospel, like we once were, can still come to faith in Christ by believing on your name. Lord, we pray that we would now, this morning, grasp our part in all of that. Lord, find our place in the movement that you're bringing to this world in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Beginning in verse 24, chapter 10, we pick up the story. It says in, uh, at the beginning of part of that, he said, The next day, Peter got up and set out with the men who had come from Caesarea and some of the brothers from Joppa who went with him. So he took some Jewish brothers with him. In verse 24, the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together uh, his relatives and his close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter helped him up. He said, stand up. I myself am also a man. While talking with him, he went on in and found that many had come together there. And Peter said to them, you know, it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. That's why I came. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, why did you send for me? First Mark I believe unmistakable mark of a movement of God is what we see in Peter, a surrendered saint. A surrendered saint. Now, when I say saint, I don't mean as in the Roman Catholic Church where they have venerated saints that you can pray to. I believe saints in the biblical sense. The word saint means holy one of God. It is another uh, uh, word for a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I speak of surrendered saints, I'm thinking of us. Anyone who claims to know the Lord Jesus Christ should be surrendered unto him. We all agree with that. The question is, what makes a saint surrender? What gets us to the place where we live a surrendered life? Now, in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to surrender to him. We all agree on that. The question is, what uh, keeps us surrendered unto him? I think three things. Number one, I think an acknowledgement of past mistakes and present frailties. I think as Peter came into this, he acknowledged that he had been wrong about uh, the cleanliness or uncleanliness of people or whether or not he could go to the Gentiles or not. He ended up being rebuked about it later on. But I think he was, had been struggling with that, and he acknowledged that he had been wrong with that. I think that Peter would acknowledge that at one point in his life he had denied Christ, and Christ had forgiven him of that. 
But he's not the only one. Think about what Paul said. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 said what? I am the least of all the apostles. In other words, Paul would say, yes, I'm an apostle, but I'm the least of the apostles. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he said, I am the very least of all the saints. In other words, yes, I'm a believer, but I'm really the least of all believers. I'm an apostle, but I'm a least of the apostles. And then he went on in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, and he said, I am the foremost of sinners. So how did Paul view himself? <laughs> he said, yes, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'm the least of them. Yes, I'm a believer and follower in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'm the very least of his followers. And yes, though I was once a sinner and saved by grace, when I was a sinner, I was the best sinner I could be. I think a saint surrenders when they acknowledge that who they were in Christ and the forgiveness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that brought them to salvation. Secondly, I think a surrendered saint has a recognition of current realities. In Peter's case, he came to this situation. I mean, you had to be thinking, this is going to be a movement of the Lord among the Jewish people. This was in his mind. I'm sure that's how he thought, even though Jesus had told them to take the gospel to the entire world. I'm sure as he came to this, the current reality was that had not happened. And I'm sure that he struggled with that. He didn't understand that. He didn't know what was going. But he could not get over the fact that God was moving. God was moving. He might not have understood everything that, that was happening, but he knew God was in it. So though we may think outside of current culture, think about our own situation here. Many of us here today are not happy with what is happening with American culture. We're not happy with where our country is headed. That's true, but it is reality. It is the current reality, and we could wish it away. We could wish we could go back where, when, when things were better, perhaps, or have another ba better day now, and we hope that would happen. We can wish ourselves outside of current culture. But we must live and we must breathe within the culture in which we live, folks. This is it. This is our day. This is the current reality. Wherever it is we live and breathe, we live and breathe Christ, and he expects us to be him. A surrendered saint understands that. They don't, they don't sit back saying, well, I wish heaven would hurry up and get here. They say, this is the reality. Let me serve God in it. Third, I think a saint surrenders because they have an awareness of supernatural gifting and supernatural empowerment. The surrendered saint understands that, yes, they've come from a place of sin, and, but they've been saved by grace. They've been transformed. This is not arrogance. This is an understanding, folks, that upon our salvation, every one of us was in, in, uh, given a spiritual gift. We've been empowered from, from on high to fulfill a unique purpose in the body of Christ. Do you realize that if you weren't here, if you weren't part of this church, this church would not be exactly what God wanted it to be until you came? And came back and plugged in. Lord, we're all brought here for a purpose, folks. God gifts and equips his church to accomplish his will and his purposes. In the here and now and forever, he has equipped us. The surrendered state understands that they are important. You're vital. You matter. The surrendered saint knows that. How many of you have ever heard of J. Hudson Taylor? He's the, he was one of the first missionaries to China. In 1865, he went there, and he took on the dress of the Chinese people at that time and became a very effective ministry. And in fact, the mission that he started still exists today. 
It still survives today. I spoke with the leader of it just this past week. Listen to this story from his life. It seems a one-legged school teacher from Scotland came to him, came to J. Hudson Taylor, and he offered himself to go serve in China. I want to go serve. But when Taylor met him, he asked, with only one leg, why do you think you can go as a missionary? Listen to what he said. I don't see those with two legs going. Hey, that's good, right? Basically said, yeah, I might only have one leg, but I'm, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go. Folks, listen, I don't know. We always have all kinds of excuses. I can't serve because, you know, I did this, or I'm, I don't have time, or I'm just too busy, or, you know, my, my, my age won't let me, or I've got infirmities, or something like that. Folks, listen to me. God empowered you. He gave you a gift. There is a way to do that. A surrendered saint is willing to serve. We won't see a movement of God unless we're surrendered to him. We won't see it. But then a movement of God will also be marked by prepared listeners. Prepared listeners. Look at verse 30. Cornelius replied to the question, why did you, ever, why did you send for me? Four days ago at this hour at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in dazzling robes stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here who is also named Peter. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. Therefore, I immediately sent for you and you did the right thing in coming. So look at this. So we are all present before God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. Second mark, unmistakable mark in a movement of God is a prepared listener. Cornelius was ready. He was ready to hear what God had to say. And folks, if we are ready to hear what God has to say, then we're going to be like him. And what, what do we see in, in Cornelius here? I think we see four things. First of all, we see that he was, he was here. He was here. Now, you're here this morning. You came to church this morning. You value coming to church and worshiping with the body of Christ. And I would say to anybody, I said, even though you have podcasts and you have radio and you have television, there's many ways to encounter. And some people don't have a choice. They can't leave their home, but they can still encounter. They're here. In this case, you can be physically here. He was there. He was in that place. He showed up. What if he'd invited Peter and then forgot about it. And four days later, he wasn't there when Peter showed up. He was there. There's a need to be physically present with the body of Christ. And there's no room, I don't believe, in the body of Christ for someone who neglects the fellowship. I think within the fellowship and, the, and someone who claims to be a body of Christ will want to be with that body. But he was here. Second, look at this. He was also present. Now you understand the difference, right? It's possible to be here and not be present. And when I was a kid, they used to say, what, here, here? And then somebody always, some little, you know, knothead would always have to say, present, you know. What's the difference between here and present? Well, I can tell you this. Sometimes when Mike is preaching, I'm here, but I'm not present. Yes, I said that. It's been recorded for all posterity. But I think that's why he looks at me so much when he's preaching. The because we doze off, don't we? I mean, I don't go to sleep. I mean, I knew a guy one time that had narcolepsy, and in the middle of the, of, of the sermon... Uh, he, he fell forward and hit his head on the pew in front of him. 
it snapped back up, and everybody heard it. It sounded like a gun going off. And, uh, and so and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just your mind wanders. It happens. It may be happening right now. I mean, it, it, it does do that. But it's one thing to be here. It's another thing that when you're here, you're present. You're in the moment. Why? Because it's an important moment. Third thing he was, he's, he was here and he was present, but it was before God. Before God. Now, this is, this is very subtle, but it's very important. I happen to believe, I've been a pastor. I was a pastor for, for almost 19 years. I was a missionary and I preached a lot of different places. I believe, though, that when the man of God, God's man, God's messenger, gets up and delivers God's message, it's a God moment. God is moving. There's something special can happen in that moment. And so we need to be here. We need to be present. We need to understand, folks, when we're here and we're present, we are before God. You're listening before God. You're singing before God. You're worshiping your conversations. And let's just be honest. There's never a time when you're not before God. But we ought to be conscious of it when we're here in this place, in this room. Cornelius was, and then the last thing he was is he was hearing. <laughs> He's here. We're here to hear. We're in this place. We're present before God to hear what you have to say. And this is another thing. I, I think this has to do with being present, but just being an active listener. As, as Mike is preaching, as he's bringing the word of God, if it's Bill, if whoever's up here doing this and bringing the message of God, we need to be actively listening, asking ourselves, what is God saying to me? What does he want from me? Lord, I'm, I'm hearing you speak, not just with my ears. I'm hearing it with my heart. Some of you have heard of Patsy Claremont, just a great Christian writer and hilarious, by the way, if you've ever read any of her books. One afternoon, she tells this story. She found herself on an airplane. She was sitting next to this young man, and uh, she said, I'd already observed something about him. Uh, when I was being seated because he called me ma'am. And at the time I thought either he thinks I'm older than dirt or he's from the South <laughs> where they still teach manners. Uh, I'm a, I'm a ma'am guy. If I yes or no ma'am or yes or no sir use because I was brought up that way. Said or he's in the service. She decided probably the latter. And so she asked, are you, are you in the service? She said, yes ma'am, I am. What branch? He said, the Marines. So she said, hey Marine, where are you coming from? This was a few years ago, and he said, Operation Desert Storm. She said, no kidding. Desert Storm, how, how long were you there? He said, I was there a year and a half, but now I'm on my way home, and my family's going to meet me at the airport. Patsy then commented, he must have thought about returning to his family and home many times while he was in the Middle East. Listen to what he said. He said, oh, no, ma'am. We were taught never to think of what might never be but to be fully available right where we were. Fully available. One of the marks of a movement of God certainly is surrendered saints. But secondly, folks, listen, it's a prepared listener. And a prepared listener is fully available. Are you here today fully available? Are you completely, absolutely available to the Lord Jesus Christ? We sang in the early service, I surrender all. When you... Saying it, have you ever sung, I surrender all, and really meant I surrender all? Or did you just sing, I surrender some? A movement of God is marked by those two things. Third, a movement of God is marked by kingdom purposes. Look at verse 34. Verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. He said, in truth, I understand that God doesn't show favoritism. 
You hear that, don't you? In truth, I understand, American, God does not show favoritism. But in every nation, every nation, the person who fears him, fears God, and does righteousness is acceptable to him. Third mark of a movement of God is a kingdom purpose. Capital K, kingdom purpose. Folks, the keys to the kingdom of Christ are available to anyone. They're available to anyone, anywhere, of any color, any intelligence, educated or not, socially acceptable or not, American or not. A movement of God cannot, will never be bound in any way. There will be no geographical, no social, racial, economic, or denominational barriers when the Spirit of God moves. His kingdom as we know from Revelation chapter 7, will ultimately be composed of every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation on earth. And I pray there might even be some Baptists up there. Like me. Folks, if we want to see a movement of God, we have to expect to see that movement extend beyond us to the thems of this world. People who aren't like us. Peter was made to understand that. He was made to understand what God has accepted, he must also receive. In the same way, God wants us to understand that right now. And like Peter, embrace a kingdom, capital K, purpose. But there's another point, folks. And that is in the kingdom of God, there seems to be too many little K's. You know, there's a lot of empire building and not a lot of kingdom building. A movement of God is bigger than any church. It's bigger than our church. But it won't exist apart from the local church. I've served four missions ministries, as I've said. And, but the kingdom of God, the, the local church is central to all of those. Surrendered, listening, kingdom purpose. The movement of God will also be marked by number four. Christ-centered communication. Christ-centered communication. Look at verse 36. Look at this sermon that Peter preaches. He sent the message to the sons of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how Jesus went about doing good and curing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. Yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, witnesses appointed beforehand by God who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Now that's a sermon, isn't it? He could say a lot, couldn't he, in a few words? Consider the content of his message to all those who are part of Cornelius' household. And when you do, you'll see he simply preached two things, folks. Two things. Number one, he preached a historical living, Holy Spirit-anointed, crucified, dead, risen, and ascended Son of God who was Jesus. And secondly, he preached 
that you could have peace with God and forgiveness of your sins if you'll just believe on his name. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And folks, that must be at the center of a movement of God. A Christ-centered message. Listen to me. Our churches can preach and should preach on marriage. But perhaps it isn't making much of a difference in our country because we failed to preach Christ in marriage. We can preach on parenting, and we should preach on parenting. But listen, let's not fail to preach on the necessity of Christ in parenting, or we run the risk of raising up a bunch of idols who think mom and dad live to serve their needs instead of God's. Can I get an amen? Hey, we can even preach on a better life now. But we better be pretty sure that everyone who listens understands that his or her life will never be better apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott compared some preachers to, to a knife-throwing act in the service, you, or in the circus. You've seen it. Well, then the guy throws knives, and somebody's spinning on a wheel, and he sees how close he can get to them without hitting them, right? And he said, well, some preachers are like that. He said, they, they, they hit above Truth. They hit close by the ear of truth. They hit under the armpit of truth and between the fingers of truth. He said they could throw within a hair's breadth of truth, but they'll never hit it. The president of my seminary once said, there's nothing more dangerous than being almost right. We will never see a movement of God apart from a Christ-centered communication. And aren't we blessed to have it here at Grace Hills? We're blessed, you know that, right? To have a pastor who stands up every Sunday and unashamedly preaches from the Word of God. He doesn't stand up and give us his opinion. He stands up and gives us God's opinion. And that's the one that only matters. We must be surrendered. We need to be ready. We need to be kingdom purpose. We need to be Christ-centered. And if we are, the results will be spirit-affirmed. Mark number five. Spirit-affirmed results. When God moves, you won't be able to explain it by a method, by a program, or by a strategy. Hear me. We can have great methods. We can have great programs. We can have great strategies. But when God moves, you won't be able to point to any of those. When, that, when God moves, all you'll be able to do is say, look what God did. Look here. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking the words... While he was even speaking, God didn't even let him give the invitation. And already he moved on their hearts. The Holy Spirit came down on all of those who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. How can you tell that the Spirit has affirmed a work? If God moves in our midst, how will we know? How will we know when that happens? Well, numbers can tell the story. You could have 69 movements, you know, among Muslim peoples around the world. You could have it, and you could count that, and you could say, here's how many new people profess faith in Christ. Certainly, numbers may tell the story, but they won't tell all of the story. Emotions may even be affected, and that could be a part of the story, too. People become emotionally charged, and they're pumped, and they're excited, but the change must go deeper than that. Folks, when God moves, we'll be moved. We'll be moved. We'll move out 
but we'll also be moved within. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. When God moves, there'll be more love in the church. There'll be more joy in the church. There'll be more peace in the church, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more self-control. Ultimately, there'll be more transformation. People will look more like Jesus than they ever have when God moves. In fact, if you want to know what, God, what, what to look for in a movement of God, look at Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. It said, when those who had received the word that Peter preached at Pentecost, the first movement of God, when they were baptized, they were baptized and they were added that day 3,000 souls. And they were, look, ongoing action, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Continually devoting themselves to God's word. Continually devoting themselves to fellowship. Continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. Continually devoting themselves to prayer. That's how you know God's moved. When God is moving, the Holy Spirit will be present. And the Holy Spirit will be affirming. So let's be surrendered. Let's be ready. Let's be kingdom purpose. Let's be Christ-centered. And if we are, number six, a movement of God will be marked by verifiable conversion. Verifiable conversion. I also call this stand-up converts. People will stand up for Jesus when he moves. You know, I mentioned these movements among Muslims. You realize that in the Muslim world, when someone professes faith in Christ and they come from a Muslim background, they won't baptize them for a year or a year and a half. Because they they want to know for certain that they're taking a stand for Christ. They want to see if they're willing to live for him. I served in Africa. And when we were in Africa, we had to resist the temptation to count someone. Say, well, that person has come to faith in Christ. We didn't give those kind of numbers until the person had been immersed. They had taken a stand for the Lord Jesus. And you say, well, why? Why did you wait? Because persecution, folks, in much of the world is not a just a possibility, it is a probability. It's a reality. And until someone is willing to identify with Christ by declaring their faith publicly, we didn't think they had expressed biblical faith. Here, I mean, you can be baptized and, and pretty much you, you get wrapped up in a robe, you change clothes, and you go have a big dinner and everything. everybody's excited and joyful and praise the Lord for that. But in much of the world, when you're baptized, as soon as you exit the baptistry and you walk into your village, they will grab you and they will beat you. Because you took a public stand for Christianity and for Christ. So here it is. A movement of God will be marked by surrendered saints, prepared listeners, a kingdom purpose, Christ-centered communication, spirit-affirmed results, verifiable conversion. But there is one last mark when God moves. And you have to come back down in chapter 11, come down to verses 17 and 18. Peter has witnessed all that has happened. They baptized those believers, and now he comes back to Jerusalem, and he's got to tell who? The Jerusalem council, the heads of the church at that time, what has taken place. They're all Jews. They, don't, they, they knew that it could happen, but they weren't sure that it would. And, and now all of a sudden, Peter, of all people, is coming back, and he tells them the story. And in verse 17, he says, Therefore, if God gave them, the Gentiles, the same gift that he also gave to us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? And listen how they responded. You can almost hear them chuckling in the room. Because when they heard this, 
they became silent. Then they glorified God, saying, <laughs> So, God has granted repentance, resulting in life to even the Gentiles. And aren't you glad? I imagine most of you are Gentiles. I know I am. Praise the Lord. Folks, when God moves, this is the last mark. The church will follow and support that movement. The church will be behind it. The church will be unified with it. The church will see it and they'll rejoice in it and they'll get behind it. In other words, we'll see a church-supported direction. A church-supported direction. Seven marks. Seven marks that should prompt seven heartfelt declarations to the Savior. But before I bring those in front of you, I want you to watch a video. It's about six minutes of a movement of God in Egypt that occurred just about five or six short years ago. You're going to hear from Pastor Fayez of the Casa de Barra Evangelical Church that exists in Cairo, Egypt, right off Tahrir Square, where Arab Spring was birthed. You're going to hear him talk about it, and what he believes happened and how that happened and at the close, you're going to see the ultimate end of what took place as God moved. Don't miss it, folks. Because a movement of God may not look like we think it should look. It may not happen like we think it will happen. But God will get the glory. Watch this video and then I'll come and close. The church in Egypt has been praying for many years now, uh, feeling from the Holy Spirit that God wants to do great things in our nation, looking to the reality and looking to what God wants to do. We have only one hope, is to pray and cry for God. God, come, rend the heavens, come and make amazing things, show your name, show how great you are in Egypt. We've, been, we've seen God answer prayer in an amazing way. Uh, momentum of prayer has started in Egypt, especially in the last 15 years. We start seeing uh, the spirit of prayer. This is where you come and you feel you are not trying to pray. It's like a wave, it's like a wind that takes you. Your sailing boat easily it moves it. That's the spirit of prayer. And especially in the last 8 to 10 years, a prayer meeting in our church that has grown from 200 to 600. 800. Now, when you have a prayer meeting, you have between at least 12 to 1400 minimum praying. And the main focus is to pray for a revival. Um, and, and, and this is not a, something that can be done by people or by men. It's a word of the Holy Spirit. Uh, from the last few months in 2010, we felt something big is going to happen in Egypt. Uh, things are going to fall down. Even we had even more specific words and prophecies about Mubarak, about what would happen in Egypt. And uh, to be honest, what happened was a lot more than we, uh, we were expecting. Are so open to listen more about God and 
look for hope and answers. Uh, they have seen everything they know falling down in front of them. Systems, regimes, leaders. A lot of things are revealed or exposed to them. And somebody said, is there any answer for our problems and challenges? And this is a time, a great time. Actually, when, when nations go through difficult times, this can make people harden their hearts more. But if the church is praying and difficulties are coming, in the middle of this time, as Isaiah 19 it says, and the Egyptians will cry for a savior, and God will answer them. I think this is what's happening. Uh, so many doors are opened from the gospel to witness, to share the gospel with, with many people around. So we see more people coming to know the Lord, more than I've ever seen in my life. I've been in the ministry for 30 years, and I'm not the only one saying this, but everyone I know around are saying we've never seen any days like this. One church is not enough. One denomination is not enough. You are building the kingdom of God. If you want to build the kingdom of God, you have to work in unity. Unity is something I believe is very precious on God's heart. That you come together as the one body of Christ in the nation and cry for the Lord. We felt this is really uh, needed in Egypt that we cannot, as a as a church in Egypt, do it by ourselves or do it alone. We needed to pray, so we extended the the the. the hands and heart of love to others. We start praying at a small level, sometimes secretly with leaders from the Orthodox Church, which is a very historical, traditional church, but strong in faith for 2,000 years now. It was like uh, the, the, the barriers fall down between the, the two churches. Little by little, this was growing. And on the 11th of November, 2011, when fights were taking place in the streets of Cairo, people were killed, 45,000 people gathered from all denominations in the cave church, praying and singing and shouting and clapping all the night. I remember very well at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, the, the people start by themselves, their own nation, shouting, Yeshua, Yeshua, which is Jesus in Arabic, clapping, Yeshua, Yeshua. And they went on for 11 minutes. Now, I've never been like this, but one of the leaders of said, he said, we're doing two things. Repenting for not having Jesus as the head of the church for so many years, or the leader of the church, and as an act of faith of putting him into his throne again in Egypt. So this was an historical night. It had a great impact in Egypt. Uh, it had great impact in other churches in the whole Arab world because it was on live on TV. But we are still in the storm. We are still in the middle of the storm. What we see, what's happening, is God is coming to uh, to shake our nation. He said, I will shake the nations. I will shake earth and heaven. And that all the idols will fall down. That's exactly what Isaiah 19, what the idols of Egypt will tell you. God come and shake the masks fall down. Revealing, exposing, light is coming. So, corruption is known. Tyrants are uh, known. Uh, injustice is known. Everything is clean. It's like Egyptians, their eyes are getting open. So everything that is not made by his hand will fall down and people will accept the unshakable kingdom of God. Fayez, in, in his words there at the end, I hope you heard them. He said, everything that is not made by God's hand will fall down. We must put our hope in the unshakable kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's a movement of God. And so I want to leave you with these seven marks or seven heartfelt declarations. And I pray that you'll make them as you leave here this morning. Number one, Lord, I surrender my will and my desires to you. A movement needs surrendered saints. Will you be one? Number two, Lord, speak to me for I am listening. A movement needs prepared listeners. Will you be one? Number three, Lord, you are king and this is your kingdom, not my kingdom. It's your kingdom. Number four, Lord, make my life's message one that is completely centered in you. Will your own communication be Christ-centered? Number five, Holy Spirit, would you fill me? Fill me. Number six, oh Lord, here I stand. I will not hide my true identity in you ever. Will you take a stand for Christ in this day? And number seven, now, oh Lord, lead me. Lead us. I will follow. High in the Andes Mountains, on a day when the sun is really bright and it shines on an ice-clad rock, that ice will begin to melt and it'll begin to form a little trickle and that trickle will join with another and then it becomes a stream as those streams join together, it becomes a brook and those brooks join together and they become tributaries and, and then finally they all come together in one massive river. And 4,345 miles later, this river, the Amazon, explodes with such force. 7.4 million cubic feet per second that the Atlantic Ocean is fresh water for 250 miles. And I know what you think. We think, what can I do? What what part can I play? I'm, I'm just one person. Folks, if you individually, if you individually make a commitment and the person next to you agrees to do the same thing and then an entire church agrees to say we're going to be and want to be a part of a movement of God and then church upon church upon church does this, we can see God move in our day and age. We want him to move. We'll wring our hands and pray for God to move, but we have to consider our individual part in seeing that happen. And I pray that you will.